The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a search for a missing woman exposes a conspiracy that could threaten an entire planet and a vampire on the side of the angels. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. This week, DJ Butler sits down with Mike Coopery to discuss his new novel, Trouble Walked In, a hard-boiled PI novel set on a far-flung colony world where buried secrets are soon to be uncovered. The novel is perfect for fans of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe, Walter Mosley's Easy Rollins, and of course, anyone who likes a fast-paced science fiction yarn. But first, the news. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story. Up right now is Dark Angel by David Carrico. The tale is a vampire story set in modern-day Israel and is part of the world of his upcoming novel, The Blood is the Life. When a dead body is found mutilated in the Golan Heights area in the Druze village of Ein Kunya, Rivka Diane knows that this job is not one that can be handled through the usual police channels. Something about the corpse tells her this isn't just a run-of-the-mill killer on the loose. Fortunately, Rivka knows Mordecai Zalman is just the man for the job though man might not be the right word, for Zalman is a creature of the night himself. Fortunately, he's on the side of the angels. Head on over to Bane.com and check out David Carrico's Dark Angel, free to read right now. Hi, this is uh, DJ Butler. Uh, I'm here with Mike Cooper to talk about his new novel, Trouble Walked In. Uh, it's out now in trade paper and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free when you buy them at Bain.com, of course, as always. Uh, Mike Cooper, he started writing in high school. He didn't really get into it until college when he began writing fiction online. Uh, he never seriously considered trying to be a novelist, though, not until 2006. That's the year he met Larry Correa, a fellow you may have heard of. Uh, Larry liked the story Mike was Hello? writing. On... <laughs> Dave? Yes. Did you just freeze? We had a connection. Apparently, my... my yes, you uh, froze up there, and it said... My, now it's saying my internet connection is unstable? How dare you? Your uh, internet connection is unstable. Okay, I'm going to start again. All right. <laughs> You stabilizing your internet connection there <laughs> all right hello and welcome this is dj butler uh i'm here with uh the one and only mike coopery to talk about his new novel trouble walked in out now in trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats drm free when you buy them at bang.com uh as always mike coopery started writing in high school he didn't really get into it until college uh, when he began writing fiction online. He'd never seriously considered trying to be a novelist until 2006. This is the year he met uh, a fellow you may have heard of, Larry Correa. Larry liked a story Mike was writing online and asked if he could jump in on it. That story ultimately became Dead Six, which I hope all of you uh, uh, listening have watched. And if you haven't, uh, then you've got a lovely trilogy uh, of Coopery slash Korea uh, fiction waiting for you. Um, in addition to that uh, trilogy Mike has, this is Mike's fourth solo novel uh, with Bain Books. Mike joins us from the Midwest, uh, where he lives with his wife, his dog, Penny, uh, and also birds. Uh, Mike Coopery, hey, welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Hello, DJ. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you been too long actually it, was it liberty con that i last it's been like two years or more liberty con 2018 is the only time i met you in person as far as i can recall i think that's probably right that's the, the con only, where my suitcase didn't show up i just saw this eight foot tall man in cargo shorts and a tricorn hat and uh <laughs> knew it had to be you <laughs> that guy's a freak yeah 
Uh, I mean, it's Liberty Con, so not, right. comparatively, no. <laughs> right. There's also Mona Lisa walking around in uh, full military regalia with a katana. So, uh, yeah. Um, well, fantastic. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Trouble Walked In. Um, so, um, I guess maybe a word about genre. This is interesting. This book, if, from a genre point of view, goes broadly science fiction right broadly it's easy science fiction but it kind of goes and pokes into some into at least two maybe maybe more other genres how do you see the genre of this book what what books is it like uh what books is it like that i couldn't tell you um it's it's like a it's basically a detective story but it's not just a detective story in space as someone derisively asked, it's the science fiction elements are actually crucial to the story. So it's not just something that could happen on Earth, but it's on space just for the hell of it. So, and it does have, it involves a conspiracy about an ancient alien life form, which that is always a fascinating thing for me. So that is something I worked into several of my books now and am continuing to work into, into books just because it's a, uh, now it gives you almost boundless story writing material, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's a, there's the PI story. It's a little kind of hard boiled PI, uh, and it's not really in space. He's on a non Earth planet, but never leaves the planet. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's no actual space involved. Right, no actual space. Uh, uh, it's also cyberpunk. Right, and it was is very oh okay. We have disagreement. Tell me no, why. No, because- it's it's got it's got cyberpunk elements in it. It's just the cyberpunk genre has gotten so broad anymore. And then you know, and then they call any other subgenre that's got some weird hook to it. They call it that plus the word punk on the end. With cyberpunk, it made sense because it had the aesthetic of the the punk rock movement from the eighties, where sure. it was born. Whereas steampunk is not very. There's punk. no punk rock in the Victorian era. Yeah, there's no punk rock in World War II for your diesel punk. Yeah, you no, know, it's God punk or any of that stuff you hear. Yeah, so it, it does have elements of of, uh, of of cyberpunk in it. You have like some of the existing technology is like neural links where you could plug a computer into your brain to yep. do things easier or faster. And there are side effects that are talked about in there, including crippling addiction, which I think would be a real problem. Yep, and uh, it doesn't work for everybody either. Yeah. Yeah, you've also got uh, the sort of there is a sort of a punk and goth style and aesthetic element, right? Yeah, it's fairly um, prominent. This is more so in some characters than others. Maybe. It's you see that more in the the main character. His name is Ezekiel Novak. Mm-hmm. His assistant is named Lily, and she's kind of fits that archetype more. She has kind of a goth punk way of dressing. She used to hang out at a nightclub that. Where that was the kind of the scene. It's not really Easy's. Easy is his nickname, by the way. It's not really his scene. That's not his world, but it's hers, and that's one of the reasons she makes a great assistant because she knows people and knows things about which he doesn't. Know. But I think that's pretty reflective of the real world. I mean, not the whole world doesn't have one aesthetic or a setting, you know. Sure. sure. I think other elements that you might say, well, that's reflective of the real world, but also I think are very characteristically cyberpunk is. Uh, you've got this clash between big uh, sort of governing mega corporations, right? Government corporations that are so big that they get something like government status or the ability to influence a government. Uh, and uh, and there's there's some Japanese aesthetic in there. I remember the '80s. I think you're old enough to remember the '80s too, when we thought everyone thought Japan was going to rule the world. I remember I remember movies from the 80s. Okay. I was I was born in 1981, so I wasn't okay. really what you call an 80s kid per so se. We were scared of Japan. Oh yeah, they were gonna they were gonna take over. That was they were gonna take over. We, um, we paid little attention to the fact that they weren't having babies yet. Eventually we realized that was gonna stop them. And also their economy almost collapsed. There, there was that too. And so, economy, yeah, they tanked the economy. Uh, but I, if, I did put some some Japanese elements. There's like a the yakuza make, yeah right? the, the yakuza operate on the planet of nova Colombia. yeah um countries on earth still exist yeah yeah by the way i like to think that countries on earth still exist. i personally am not much of a believer in the idea of a united 
federation of planets or a politically unified earth i'm not sure i mean there is there is you know there is a uh there is an interstellar organization that's uh, that most of the countries on earth and a lot of the colonies are members of it's kind of a defensive military alliance it's fairly limited in power though it's more it's less powerful even than i'd say the european union by comparison mostly it's just defensive yeah yeah Oh, and if everyone hasn't met him yet, this is Jax, my blue crown conure. Hello. uh, He's looking a little rough there because he's been over pruning his under fluff on his front there, but (laughs) he decided to join us. So, um, okay. So we've, it's a PI story. It's got some cyberpunk stuff and it's a first contact. It's actually, it's not a first contact story. There have been contacts before, but it is a contact with an unknown alien entity um, story really kind of ultimately right that's kind of that's where this all ends um it's it's kind of a first contact scenario with the particular entity that the story revolves around humankind has already encountered other alien races and in fact fought a war with an alien race yeah at one point uh, called the uh the ceph yeah so this is so the existence of aliens is not like a new thing and the uh existence of the ancient now extinct alien race they call the antecessors that's been known for a long time yep and and so some of the the first contact history prior to the story it's not all uh buttercups and roses right so there's a war but also there's at least some rumored uh disaster around uh discovering or alien contact or alien artifacts right yeah, the antecessors had a technology that referred to in story as a vacuum energy engine. It's a zero point energy, as it's also called. It's their way of just deriving energy from the fabric of the universe. Very, um, you can see where that'd be tempting because it's even if you have fusion power, you're talking unlimited energy anywhere at any time. So that'd be if you could crack that, that'd be it changed the world. Problem is that it's you know they're like cavemen monkeying around with a hand grenade. They don't know how it works. And there was an incident at the Medusa Fosse colony on Mars that they think was they were attempting to activate one of these and it destroyed the colony and killed 100,000 colonists. So uh, this stuff is pretty heavily regulated just because of the potential risk. So that does leave a window for unscrupulous actors to try to work it through it on the black market, though, get it behind the scenes or to bribe government officials in and let them do what they want with it right yeah to jam the regulator and, and use that power to control it um uh interesting okay so this is part of the background we, we know this early on we have indications early on that what's going on i'm not giving away like spoilers for sudden yeah, the, these yeah these are not going to be surprising to you if you read the book this is all pretty well laid out yeah so, okay, so tell us more about Easy. Who is he? What, what, what's his background? Um, what makes him tick? Why is he a PI? Easy is a local. He was born on the planet of Nova Columbia. He's probably in his mid 40s or so. Um, he was very much inspired by, uh, by the writings of Raymond Chandler. I read some of his work to get a feel for the genre awesome. beforehand. And uh, he's a good guy. Because one thing Raymond Chandler was always adamant about is that the detective is a hero. You know, later in film noir, you have like these very, very morally ambiguous characters and situations. Easy is not morally ambiguous. He has a very strong sense of right and wrong. Yeah. He always tries to do the right thing. He tries to be responsible. And sometimes it works in his favor, sometimes not. But he has his own moral code that's very important to him. He's a veteran of the war with the Ceph. He uh, fought on a planet called Harvest, where they had to basically a long, grueling campaign to retake this colony world from the aliens. He, uh, I don't know if I ever got into it in the book, but he was in the mechanized infantry, which is like power armor in the setting. Um, And he also did a job where he was doing technical escort for intelligence uh, operatives as they went and collected and studied Ceph technology. And he made some contacts doing that also. But he, he brings kind of a, you know, just a regular, a regular guy working class uh, point of view to the story. 
something I think a lot of readers in my typical target audience will be able to identify with. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy doing a job. Yes. Yeah. He uh, came into the agency because someone he was, he served with in the war, wanted to be a detective. And they said if they got through the war together, they'd come back and start the agency. So we did. Well, unfortunately, something happened to his comrade and it left and the agency was bequeathed to him. And he maintains it. Well, number one, it's he's he turns out he's quite good at the job. And number two, out of a sense of loyalty to his friend. Yep. Uh, worth noting, maybe that easy carries a wheel gun. You're, you're kind of a wheel gun fan yourself. Yes, um, because I have taste and culture. <laughs> um, I've made it a point that in every single work of fiction I write that has something, you know, that it has some version of modern firearms in it somebody will carry a revolver yeah this isn't like a conventional revolver when you reload it he pushes a lever and the cylinder itself ejects and he replaces it with a new one and they're disposable it fires explosive tipped ammunition but it's still a revolver and it's kind of you know there are a lot of revolvers in cyberpunk even in the cyberpunk 2077 game for all of its flaws had several different revolver weapons in it so it's it fits in the genre plus there's a little bit of a dirty, hairy thing going on there, too. Yeah. He's not quick to bring on violence. He doesn't like to use violence. In fact, you know, it can get him in trouble. You can't just go around shooting people. Right. But he's not afraid to do it when he has to. So there, there is some element of that, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, a, and a, as you noted, there's a, there's a consistent, consistency with the existing Cooper aesthetic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Part, of the, part of the brand. Yeah. I love it. Um, so I like this point that he's he's not a noir PI, right? And this is something I think people, um, I mean, I don't know, you bog down discussions of genre, but, but people sometimes use, you know, the idea of noir to just mean detective stories. That's really not yeah. it. Yeah, film noir is a, you know, it's a film technique. Yep. And, you know, it got kind of conflated with detective stories, but detective stories probably predate um noir film noir film came from france i yeah. believe after the 1930s i think is when it the genre was kind of born and it and it's there's a lot of overlap but they're not they're not necessarily the same thing at all no. um you know the detective stories came from the pulps in the early 20th century the pulps also which birthed you know science fiction and and fantasy as genres and westerns and romance and everything else just yeah. about and uh well and they had older antecedents too right detective stories go back to arthur conan doyle and they go back to edgar Allan poe yes and um yeah and and, and noir one of these, the basic ideas of noir is this protagonist who's on the edge and has like the you know he's already kind of one foot a lawbreaker and then a bad woman seduces him is classically right the yeah there's some of that and you know there's a lot of just there's a lot of just noir film techniques too mm. it's not just filming something that's dreary and black and white yeah um i'm not a particular fan of the genre i haven't seen a lot of movies that could be described accurately as film noir yeah. but when i concocted this story and it ended up, i ended up settling on it it'd be kind of a detective story so yeah this is my first attempt at writing a detective story, so I hope it didn't come out to be crap. Yeah, I can assure you it did not come out to be crap. Now, you do have, it's interesting. So this is, I wanted to make a point from, from this femme fatale noir point. So um, Easy uh, interacts with three women, well, more than three, but three sort of prominent female characters, uh, every one of whom has this sort of, attachment to a uh dark or radical organization right and so yes. um is there something you want us to tell us about how you feel um, about women mike or is this is this uh, what this is curious to me like is this wow <laughs> going right for that huh wow <laughs> pure pure joke uh trying to get trying to get me canceled okay yeah <laughs> no um the the main hook of the story is that this beautiful woman comes into his office and he wants her to find her, her missing sister. 
This her is missing, Dagny, right? Dagny yeah. is the client, yes. Her missing sister works for the giant, you know, the giant mega corporation Ascension. And she's just gone missing. She just vanished. The last time she saw her, something was obviously wrong. And mm -hmm. she doesn't know where she went. She can't get a hold of her. Mm -hmm. And that is the that's that's how the plot begins, basically. Um, Dagny has a little bit of a checkered past. She was involved with some, you know, radical political organizations that could probably be a terrorist organization as a young person. She got roped into it when she was in college. The GLF. And uh, yes, the Global Liberation Front. And uh, she ended up turning her life around, but she had to leave her home city and move and take on a fake name even because they still her former comrades still kind of want to kill her. No. Um, so that's the client. Yes. Her yeah. sister. Yep. The sister's is, Cassandra was kind of like a goody goody in comparison. The sisters were kind of opposites. Cassandra did well in school. She did well in college. She went and worked for Ascension just like her stepdad did. You know, she never got into trouble. She kept her nose clean her whole life. And then suddenly she disappears. She, Trouble found her, even though she didn't try to get involved. Yeah. But, you know, she may not have done anything wrong, but her employer, Ascension, certainly has. They have a, they're very powerful. They have too much influence over the colonial government. They have a lot of money. And, you know, when you're in that position, you can make things happen that normal people can't. And they have, they have connections to, we'll get back to this maybe, but to sort of, uh, through an eccentric, uh, is not really a founder, but the son of the founder, yes, the owner, a, ma a main shareholder. They yes. also have this kind of they're like a sister organization, basically with a sort of a wacky space cult, right? Um, this it's the uh, Cosmic Ontological Foundation, yeah, and they're they put on the airs of being like a legitimate research organization and. They do spend a lot of money trying to research and collect and find alien artifacts. But beneath all that is kind of uh, this belief that the ancient antecessor aliens or some other ancient race created not only humanity, but all life in the galaxy. And why they assume this? Well, that's just what they believe. They believe sentience on Earth and other planets didn't arrive naturally that it had to have been caused deliberately a la the plot to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, canonically, that is not the case, but that's what they believe. Yeah. And they believe it very hard. Well, Some of them by the are, way, as of the end of the story, right, without saying anything to like spoil it, uh, the alien has exhibited a high degree of power such that it's not insane to think that... Oh yeah, that's the a, that's a thing. There are the ancient aliens, and as we learn in the story, especially... There were things out there that were incredibly advanced, almost arguably godlike in power. You could forgive somebody for seeing this thing and thinking it's a god in yeah. some cases, but it, it, they're not, though. There are some important differences, I think. Yeah. But, you know, that's just that's the fallibility of man, right? We see something that's very powerful. We kind of want to we want to hitch our wagon to it because it gives us meaning in life. Uh, including uh, celebrities and uh, you, I hate not to say anything too cynical, but boy, I see uh, aspiring writers trying to hitch themselves to uh, what? Yeah, I know it's hard to believe, but yeah, I think, I think we see that on uh, people, you know, people latch on to celebrities, they latch on to political movements, they find these little counterculture movements, and I think a lot of that has to do with in the modern age for as connected as we are. I mean, you and I are sitting here having a video conversation like something from RoboCop, right? Yet I haven't seen you in person in four years. You know, for all of our connectivity, we are as individuals in, this, in the modern world seem to be more isolated and more atomized than ever. You find a group of friends, but instead of them being the people you live with, they're all over the country or all over the world that you probably won't ever get to meet most of them. And, but people who are kind of borderline, people who are really struggling or maybe a little out there, they can find other people who are just like them to validate them instead of feeling compelled to maybe, maybe not be so weird, you know, because sometimes, sometimes being yourself, being true to yourself, being your good, weird self is good. Other times it's, it's not so good. Other times it goes into bad places. You it's know? a hard road, Mike. Come on. So, 
<laughs> and I, I think you see a lot of that. It's almost a cultural wasteland sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. You know, a lot of young people out there, especially over the last couple of years, with the, you know, with the, the COVID and the lockdowns and all the turmoil, there have been a lot of people out there. I think it's been really hard on their well-being and their emotional health. And they turn to the internet as an outlet and the internet is a terrible place. So <laughs> period. Internet is a terrible place. Period. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So the third woman is you already mentioned her Lily or Lilith, right? Yes. Um, and uh, aesthetically she's goth. Uh, professionally, she's sort of a hacker. Yes. She uh, was kind of a, she was kind of a child prodigy. Mm-hmm. You know, when she was a teenager, she was, she's very smart, very good with, you know, information systems. She got, she got in trouble, like with the law because of illegal hacking. And after that, she decided to keep her nose clean, but she works with easy. She's much younger than him. She's old enough to be young enough to be his daughter. And he does have kind of a paternalistic relationship with her. He, he worries about her, and, but she also worries about him. The opening scene, he had a couple of drinks and he makes her t- makes him take the train home instead of driving because the auto navigation function in his car isn't working. Yeah. Well, and, and, and so this is, and this is a, just to kind of wind it back to the earlier conversation, right? There's nothing, it's not an exploitative relationship. In uh, fact, he talks about, and it, you know, it's, the story is told in the first person. So it's easy is very much addressing you, the reader telling yeah. his story. And he talks about how, you know, you shouldn't trust a guy who like goes chasing after his own employees like that. It's at best, it's bad management at worst. It means he's a complete scumbag. Yeah. And I happen to believe that in life too. So, yeah, yeah. So now, uh, her previous adventures, experiences as a as a hacker mean that she also has a connection to sort of a shadowy organization, right? Yes. Yes. Talk about these people. She was a member of a group called Arcanum. They're sort of a loosely affiliated in a lot of cases, but they do have a central hierarchy, um, kind of a hacker collective, kind of information brokers. You know, they, they're not quite like anonymous. They don't do a lot. They don't do as much like malicious hacking as like some hacker groups in the real world do. But what they do is they mostly go after the government and large corporations and institutions with power. And they try to get into their systems and reveal their dirty secrets. Yeah. They're quite good at it which also means they have a lot of enemies, a lot of very powerful enemies. Um, She was a member of this group when she got in trouble and she kind of wanted to get away from it. Part of the story is her meeting somebody from her own past and uh, having to work with him. Yep. Yeah. So the Arcanum is sort of maybe, maybe a way, uh, you know, correct me if I'm off base, but it's sort of, Hey, anonymous, if they were being their best selves, you know, or like it's like some anonymous, some like your your project Veritas, I guess. You're yeah. like some whistleblower, your yeah. your uh, WikiLeaks in some ways, you know. It's it takes elements of all of those. It isn't yeah. exactly like any one of them. This is a fictional setting. And right. and just to clear up any uh conceptions anyone might have, I am absolutely not trying to be topical or relevant in my any of my works of fiction in any way. So, put that out of your minds right now, unless it causes you to buy the book, and then just keep it yourself. Um, so, uh, which does not make them, by the way, like a black box that is just going to solve all of Easy's problems. No, no, they have their own issues, they have their own limitations, and they have their own concerns. They yeah. they see what he's getting into, and they don't want to. They think it's too many. Maybe they have to decide: is this much enough risk? Is this level of risk justified for us? Because kind of things like this, if you get busted, you can go to jail for a long time. Because if nothing else, Ascension has an army of lawyers, and uh, lawyers can ruin you. Lawyers suck. I will tell you that. Um, so um, let's. We haven't talked much about the setting. So this is this is in the future. How far in the future is this, by the way? Um, it takes place roughly in the 2400s, okay. so not not terribly far. The planet in question has been named Nova Columbia. It orbits the star 18 Scorpii, 
which is about 43 light years from Earth, if I recall correctly. It's a real planet, that a real uh, real star that it's a main, it's a main sequence star that may or may not have planets in the habitable zone. Um, you probably won't actually find this planet I made up in my mind out there in space. No, but um, not the planet the planet itself is kind of bleak. It's in order to be considered a good a good candidate for colonization and for terraforming. One of the things they look for is a planet that doesn't have its own fully developed, advanced ecosystem, but is still capable of bearing life. Mm. And that's kind of a, a narrow, you know, uh, like a kind of a narrow doorway to squeeze through, right? Because mm. if you have a planet that has, if you have a planet like Earth and you're an alien and you want to live here, well, now you have to find a way to adapt all your plant life and your animal life, and you're, it's going to be in constant competition with the native ecosystem. And there's going to be all kinds of problems. On the other hand, taking a, you know, a lifeless rock and making that inhabitable is going to be a lot of work as well. Even if it has water, there's like nutrients and all sorts of things you're going to have to do. So what they did is they found one that's kind of roughly equivalent to Earth about 600 million years ago. There is native life, mm -hmm. but it's mostly the equivalence of like algaes and slime molds and, yep. and little things in the water. So it doesn't really affect people all that much except for one particular slime that causes a sickness called kellerman syndrome which is lethal yeah. other than that just just cute slime molds yeah um it's there's not much the planet is pretty barren and rocky it's slowly being terraformed they plant you know they've seeded forests they've, they've adapted plant life to thrive in that environment but it's just going to take time the colony is not even is only like 150 years old 130 years old so basically you have this nice terraformed zone and the rest of the planet is almost barren still. Yeah. The, um, I guess a couple things. Uh, there are a few references to Trappist one and events on Trappist one in the, in the history. And, and this is, here's my question. This is the system that uh, Rob Hampson used for his founder effect anthology. Yes. I'm in that, but I have not read all of the stories. So I was curious, is that a deliberate call out or is that just, it was a good system to pick for? Other it wasn't a coincidence. I mean, it's, it was, I don't want to say it's, we both picked it for the same reason. Mm -hmm. It's a star that has been verified to have planets that are in the habitable zone. That's the reason I picked it. That is okay. in the story. Trappist one is where they originally found um, an antecessor spacecraft that okay. had been derelict out there for 68 million years. Um, I don't really go into it. It doesn't really involve the Trappist system per se. The stories are not in a shared universe. I do not believe there is any kind of faster than light travel in that in that setting. So, and I also don't recall any alien contact. But like I said, I haven't read all the stories. So I, thought, huh, I wonder if Mike's got a story in there. I and I forgot to go check before this discussion. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, interesting. I, so I like the fact, by the way, that uh, you've got a story that's four hundred years in the future and people and as a guy using a revolver this is uh i mean i wasn't i wasn't really trying to make it like a retro future type thing nobody's oh. running nobody's running around with like tape drives or anything like that but i, I there's always a there's a balance in writing science fiction that's set in the future where on one hand you want to have advanced technology because it's cool it's good story fodder yeah. On the second hand, trying to predict what's actually going to happen is a futile game. You know, you're whatever you predict, you're going to be wrong. So don't don't try. Just invent the universe, pick a tech setting, and just go with it. Right. But I also didn't want to make it so advanced that the story couldn't happen or that life would be unrecognizable. Because you could tell stories like that, but that's not the kind of story I wanted to tell. Right. But I agree. Agree with all that. I, li I like all that. Here's the other thing I would say. So if you read like Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, one of the things he talks about is, hey, uh, a good indication that a technology is really robust and can and of service is if it's been around a long time. Like tables have been around a long time. There are probably going to be tables in the future because it turns out they work really well, right? Whereas technology something is brand new, like an iPhone, we haven't really figured out all the ups and you know the pros and cons. And there's more likely we're going to discover some serious problem or a better replacement. I like the idea 
that 400 years from now, people are going, you know what? This, uh, this, it's a seven shot revolver, as I recall, yeah. right? It's yes, but you know, there's, I mean, we've already been using brass case metallic cartridge ammunition since the Civil War, right? And smokeless powder for like 125, 130 years almost now. It's not change comes very slowly in firearms. And I've done a lot of research into things like, you know, individual weapons, like energy weapons, and everything besides chemically propelled firearms has a lot of drawbacks that may or may not. Yeah. Need room temperature superconductors. You need an incredible power supply. Right. You know, lasers have the same issue of needing a power supply, even if you can get it to work, which you can. I mean, I think these will happen eventually, but they have like unforeseen side effects, like a laser that's lethal out to say 200 meters will blind a bystander all the way to the horizon yeah so that's kind of a that might be a big negative for using lasers in, right. in depending on the situation you know urban environment yeah and like a reflection off of a doorknob can cause eye damage right or a glass a glass building yeah i mean it may only flash for a second before it gets burned and deformed but in that second is enough to cause a permanent eye damage yeah so anything, and, I like that. So anything that's going to replace a revolver is going to have to do better than a technology. Froze, Dave. That's why I'm waiting for you to come back. That's funny. You look like you've frozen from my point of view. Can you hear me yet? Can you, can, am I? Oh, you're back. Yep. You froze. We're back now. Yep. Well, we'll, we'll see in the recording who really froze. Um, okay. No, actually we heard you audio while you were frozen still. So. Yeah. I can still hear you when, when the screen freezes up, usually you just pause for a second. So I think we're, I think we're okay. Yeah. You just might have to edit this a little bit. Uh, it, it'll, it'll, I believe me, this is far from my most, uh, uh, you know, freeze plagued uh, recording. <laughs> um, okay. So Nova Columbia, uh, I said urban environment a minute ago on purpose. There's a city, right? Delta City. Uh, there's got to be a city or Dave wouldn't be talking about, you know, cyberpunk. What, what should we know about Delta City? Anything in particular? Delta City was named because uh, it was from site, like uh, landing site Delta is where they got the name from. And it's a little bit of a callback to RoboCop too, um, where, you know, the futuristic Detroit was called Delta City back when they thought Detroit had a future. And uh, <laughs> I think they um, called Detroit's future pretty well. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but you know, it's a, it's in a crater that's about forty miles wide, and it's a very congested city. It's got gigantic skyscrapers. It's got thirty million people living in it. It's like one of those humongous cities in China, like a Hong Kong or a Shanghai. And the reason everybody is so piled in on top of each other, despite having an entire planet to live on, is, again, most of the planet isn't terraformed. Like, you can go build a homestead on the other side of the world if you want, but you're going to be out there by yourself. And what are you going to do for a living? Where are you going to get building materials? There's no roads. There's no infrastructure. There's no people around. And on a lot of places in the continental interiors on the planet, you got to drill down a very long way to hit groundwater. You know, it's the same reason land is so cheap in northern Arizona. There's a lot of it, and you have to drill down 8,000 feet to hit the water table, so it's almost worthless. And so everyone tends to live just in these few big cities. And Delta City isn't the only city. There's also an Epsilon City that's the, the planetary capital that's mentioned. So... <clears throat> Just to get a little into the plot, and we and at any point, if you're like, no, Dave, that's too much spoilers, we can stop. I don't, I don't want to like ruin the book for anybody. But uh, so the book is called Trouble Walked In, and basically, you know, the story starts uh, mm -hmm. when uh, when when Trouble walks in, uh, which is to say, Dagny, uh, the client, Dagny Blake, comes in and says, "Hey, my sister." Uh, uh, and they're stepsisters, right? Because her name's Dagny Blake, and it's Cassandra. Um, I almost said Claire Carmichael. Carmichael. They're, they are biological sisters. Um, mm -hmm. They do have a stepfather, but they were both born from the same father. Dagny's mm -hmm. name was changed because she kind of went into almost witness protection. Oh, that's her real, right. her real name is Dagny Carmichael. Okay, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, her, we, we, you've already said this, her sister, uh, Cassandra, who was sort of the good one, 
who followed their stepfather uh, in, in his career uh, with Ascension, uh, the big kind of megacorp uh, has gone missing and it's a little kind of mysterious. Maybe, maybe it's worth saying a little bit about the father, stepfather. He, he's, a, he's a character. We see him on screen. What's, uh, you know, t- tell us about him a little bit. And, and how did Cassandra, what's, what's Cassandra's relationship to him, as far as we can tell? That question, you froze up there for about 20 seconds. Oh, sorry. So tell us about the father, about Carmichael, the, the, the stepfather. Yeah, he... Their biological father passed away when they were young, and a few years later, their mother remarried. Um, Carmichael, he's not a bad guy. He just, he's a company man. He's been working for that company for decades. He's a security administrator. He's worked his way up the chain, and it's kind of cutthroat. They, Ascension gets into some shady business sometimes. If He's had to be ruthless sometimes, but he's always looked out for his family as best he could. Now, when Dagny was young and foolish, she got involved with a terrorist organization. He kind of disowned her for a while because this caused, it actually cost him a promotion at his job and it caused problems for him. But her mother didn't give up on her. Her mother stayed in touch with her. And once their, once their mother passed away, it was her dying wish that the two sisters reconcile because they had a big falling out when this happened too. And part of the, what happened before the story is they were slowly reconciling, getting to know each other once again, and getting over all that old, those old hurts when suddenly Cassandra goes missing. And then Dagny seeks a detective to try to help her find her sister. Yeah. And um, yeah, very good. So uh, without fault, without going through like various lines of clues, uh, you know, basically we've, we've got these lines that take us to, uh, we get involved in kind of gang hit. Uh, uh, there's the, we get closer and closer to this kind of nutty uh, space cult group. Um, and, uh, and this mysterious thing that Ascension has, which is Project Isaiah, uh, which is a reference to Isaiah 6, right? Uh, the seraph with six wings. Yes, um, the... And this is not really a, uh, this is not a spoiler because it's mentioned pretty early on. Right. They discover a thing called the Seraph. It's something that they dubbed it that, something they dug up under a volcano. Yeah. So they's not the hero. They is basically Ascension or Ascension. Ascension yeah. Ascension found it on a dig site. Yeah. And they are kind of are keeping it. And the, the, the concern is they're doing experiments on it in secret that, you know, there's always this fear that what if we mess with something? We don't know what it is and cause another disaster so that's why they're kind of doing this on the down low because if they just were to announce it their discovery the government might come in and put it on lockdown and take it away from them and they couldn't exploit it yep uh which turns out to be tied into cassandra's disappearance yes et cetera et cetera cetera. yeah it's not it's not like a, a mystery story in the in the respect that I didn't like lay out some clues that for you to try to figure out the, the plot of it yourself. My brain doesn't work that way. It's just, you just follow along as easy and his, uh, the people he encounters helps him get to the bottom of what's happening. So I just don't want anybody to go into this thinking it's going to be like a, like one of those murder mysteries where, yeah, not, not quite. No, it's not quite that involved. I'm afraid. But it is a mystery. It's an engaging PI story. And in, in good PI story fashion, you know, people are beating Easy and his friends up and uh, threatening them. And yeah, Easy takes a few licks in the story. He, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's a tough business. Yeah, he gets he gets his gets his ribs kicked in by a cyborg at one point. And a big guy who's so big, he calls him a truck. Yeah, <laughs> and there's and there's back and forth where he's there. So I should mention there's I mentioned there's a there are the intelligence services are in the mix here too. And so there's like, you know, there's an, to some extent, there's like figuring out, well, who do I want as an ally here? If we're all chasing a MacGuffin, you know, who, who can chase the, who can I help get their MacGuffin that I can, you know, get, get uh, assistance out of for getting Cassandra. Uh, yeah. One of the story hooks is, yeah, Easy is trying to figure out who he can trust. He has a contact from his military days who's in the intelligence world, but he needs to decide if he can trust this guy 
because there's he, there's a suspicion that maybe the intelligence agencies are involved themselves. So that's it puts him in a conundrum, and it how it gets resolved is you're going to have to read the book. You have to read the book. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, so okay, so uh, hey, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think you would like readers to know about the book? Well, um, I. I have a associated short story that I've written and turned in, which should be up on the band oh, website yeah. before the novel gets released. Um, I'm not exactly yeah. sure when. Do you know the title? Sorry, you know the title of your short story. Uh, I Yes. Uh, one second. It is. Uh, <laughs> I have this problem all the time. <laughs> I am thinking really hard and I'm not stalling and I'm certainly not looking up the file name on my computer. <laughs> Um, while this is going on, the short story is called Trouble Is My Business. Oh, perfect. Okay, that's a great name. So, yeah, so you ought to be able to, um, you ought to, I, the reason I asked for the title is because you ought to be able to Google Trouble Is My Business, Coopery, and, and get to the Bain website. I don't know if it's up yet, but it might be by the time this video gets into circulation. So, yeah, usually the timing is these come out after the book is published yeah, from, from what i understand it'll be up before the uh before the book is released yes kind of yeah. it's it's i found that writing a short detective story was actually very difficult because yeah. i'm trying to introduce a world in an abbreviated fashion and also tell a story and resolve it in a few thousand words and i, I went a little bit over so and, and there's the element of there is a mystery, right? Yes. Or, yeah. It's a little bit, this is a, a side story. It's not directly related to the main story of the book, but I wanted to kind of get the reader a feel for what the world is like. And you do get to visit a part of the world that you don't see in the book. You get to go out into the agricultural zones where they grow all their food and, and meet a, a wealthy rancher, basically, is the, uh, one of the characters. So it kind of takes it and puts it in a little bit different of a setting. For part of the story i like that that's interesting now uh trouble walked in is not obviously set up as the beginning of a series right um i mean it's a self-contained story yes um do you think you'll write any more adventures of uh, uh of easy and his uh sidekicks i you know i could um i don't have any planned at the moment i wrote it as a self-contained story i did that for two books in a row I just wrote just a one-off family business. Um, yeah, like, but the end of the book, like Dagny and Cassandra's character arcs are kind of complete. Um, there's definitely room for more for the way I set up, and Easy is still a detective. Yeah, you know, there, there there could be more. So if you know if there's demand and people just love it and they want another one, I could be talked into it. Yeah. But it's not setting up a series. No, it's. You don't have to worry about a cliffhanger or anything at the ending. Everything is resolved, basically. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So readers or listeners, this is, you know, what you got to do is you, you buy the book. And if you like it, you know, reviews, reach out to Bain, uh, say, hey, put that guy Coopery back in the cage and make him write another one of these. Uh, don't put me back in the cage. <laughs> Please. Well, um, awesome. So uh, are there... Uh, as we wind up here, are there other projects? What are you working on now that you want to talk I, about? My work in progress right now is a brand new space opera called Twin Star. It's a new setting, uh, a new story, and it should be done by this fall. So I expect it will be released next year. Very next cool. summer, probably. Um, it's not related to my previous space operas or any of my other work. It's just I'm started from a clean slate, building a new world, introducing new characters. Yeah. Very cool. And are you, um, so are you a committed sci-fi guy? Would you ever write fantasy, you think? I mean, I could write fantasy. Uh, I never read fantasy, though. The only fantasy novel I've ever written, like traditional, like fantasy, fantasy, I, I read Lord of the Rings in, in college, and that's about it. Um, it's never really been my bag. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've read some urban fantasy. I've read most of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter books and his Grimnor books, for example, mostly in rough draft form. Um, but it's just never been like my thing. So I have some ideas, some things I might pitch, but that might be a little bit more of a, a little bit farther down the road for me. Yeah, 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 understood. 
Fantastic. Well, <clears throat> once again, the book is Trouble Walked In, out now from Bain Books in uh, trade paper and an ebook. Uh, Mike Cooper, hey, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. A week later, Johnny, Halloran, Deutsch, Nofke, and Singh, now designated Cobra Team 2-03, left with the other newly commissioned Cobras on a heavily protected skip transport for the war zone. Penetrating the troughed battle perimeter, the teams were space-shooted into an 800-kilometer stretch of Adirondack's strategic Essek district. The landing was a disaster. Reacting far quicker than anyone had expected them to, the troughed ground forces intercepted Johnny's team right on the edge of the city Deutsch had been steering them toward. The Cobras were able to escape the encirclement with nothing more than minor flesh wounds. But in the blistering crossfire of that battle, three civilians, caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, were killed. For days afterward, their faces haunted Johnny's memories. And it was only as the team settled into their cover identities and began planning their first raid that he realized Mendro had been right and he was well on his way to collecting a soldier's memories. Interlude Halfway around Asgard from Freyr Complex, removed both in distance and philosophical outlook from the centers of military strength, lay the sprawling city known simply as Dome. Periodic attempts had been made in the past two centuries to give it a more elegant name, but those efforts had been as doomed to failure as would have been a movement to rename Earth itself. The city and the geodesic dome that dominated its skyline were as fixed in the minds of Dominion citizens as were their own names, because it was from here that the Central Committee sent out the orders, laws, and verdicts that ultimately affected the lives of each one of those citizens. From here could be reversed the decisions of mayors, syndics, and even planetary governor-generals. And as all were equal under the law, so in theory could any citizen's complaint or petition be brought to the committee's attention. In practice, of course, that was pure myth, and everyone who worked in the dome's shadow knew it. Small, relatively local matters were in the province of the lower levels of government, and that was where they generally stayed. Seldom did any matter not directly affecting billions of people come to even a single Comité's attention. But it did happen. Comité Sarkis Horm's office was about average for one of the thirty most powerful men in the Dominion. Plush carpet, rare wood paneling, a large desk inlaid with artifacts from dozens of worlds, a quiet sort of luxury, as such things went. Beyond the side doors lay his eight-room personal apartment, and the miniature haiku garden where he often went to think and plan. Some comités used their dome apartments but rarely, preferring to leave their work behind in the evening and fly out to their larger country estates. Horm was not one of those. Conscientious and hard-working by nature, he often worked late into the night, and at his age the strain too often showed. It was showing now, Vanis Darrow thought, running a critical eye over Horm as the comité skimmed through the report he'd prepared. Soon now, probably sooner than either had expected, Horm would drive himself to an early death or retirement, and Darl would take his place on the committee, the ultimate success the Dominion had to offer, but one that carried a twinge of uneasiness along with it. Darl had been with Horm for nineteen years, 
the last eight as chief aide and chosen successor. And if he learned one thing in that time, it was that running the dominion properly took infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. The fact that no one else possessed those qualities either was irrelevant. The philosophy of excellence under which he'd been raised demanded he strive for the closest approximations possible. Horm, also born and raised on Asgard, shared that background, and Darl therefore knew how much work those goals entailed. Pushing the page button one last time, Horm laid down his comm board and raised his eyes to Darl's. Thirty percent. After all the preliminary testing, thirty percent of the Cobra warrior trainees are still being deemed unfit. I presume you noticed the primary reason listed? Darl nodded. Unsuitability for close work with civilian populations. It's a catch-all category, I'm afraid. But I couldn't get the numbers broken down any further. I'm still trying. You'll see what this implies, though, don't you? For the tests to have missed that badly, something must have changed between the prelims and the final cut. And what that means is that we're sending fully activated Cobra warriors to Silvern and Adirondack without truly understanding their psychological state. On general principles alone, that's poor policy. Darl pursed his lips. Well, it may just be a temporary feeling of power induced by their new abilities, he suggested. A taste of warfare might make them realize that they're as fallible as any other mortals. Bring any conceit back down to normal. Perhaps, but perhaps not. Horm flipped to the report directory, found an item. Three hundred of them sent out in the first landing wave. Six hundred more in training. <laughs> I suppose it could just be a reflection of the poor statistics available. Any indication the army's adjusting its prelim testing screen? Too soon to tell, Darl shook his head. For a moment the other was silent. Darl let his attention drift to the triangular windows at Horm's back and the panoramic view of dome it provided. Some comités had the windows permanently blanked in favor of more picturesque hollows, and he'd often thought Horm's choice indicated a firmer commitment to seeking out truth and reality. If you'd like, sir, he spoke up, I could place a cancellation order for the whole project on the considerations list. At the very least, it would alert the rest of the committee that there were potential problems with it. Hmm. Horm gazed at his comm board again. Three hundred already in action. No. No, the reasons the committee gave its approval in the first place are still valid. We're in a war for Dominion territory, and we've got to use every weapon that could possibly help us. Besides, cutting things off now would essentially doom the Cobra warriors already fighting to a losing war of attrition. Still, he tapped his fingers on his desk, I want you to start gleaning all military intelligence coming from Silvern and Adirondack for data on how they're interacting both with each other and the local civilian populations. If any problems start developing, I want to know about it right away. Yes, sir, Darl nodded. It might help if I knew exactly what you were looking for. Horm waved a hand vaguely. Oh, call it a... a titan complex, I suppose. The belief that one is so powerful that one is above normal laws and standards. The Cobra warriors have been given a great deal of physical power, and that can be a dangerous thing. Darl had to smile at that. Imagine, a comité of the Dominion worried about too much power in a single individual. Still, he saw the other's point. The Cobra warriors had been handed their power all at once, instead of having to acquire and use it in small increments, which essentially sidestepped the usual adjustment mechanisms. I understand, he told Horm. Do you want me to file that report in the main system? No, I'll do it later. I want to study the numbers more closely first. Yes, sir. The unspoken implication being that some of those figures might wind up in Horm's personal database rather than in the more accessible main dome system. One of the bases of power, Darl had long ago learned, was in not letting potential opponents know everything you did. Shall I have someone bring up dinner for you? Please. And add in an extra pot of cave. 
I expect I'll be working late this evening. Yes, sir. Darl got to his feet. I'll probably also be in my office until later if you need me. Horm grunted acknowledgement, already engrossed in the comm board again. Walking silently on the thick carpet, Darl crossed to the inlaid graphwood door. The Cobra warriors were certainly no danger while occupied in a war. But Horm wasn't one to jump at sudden noises, and if he was becoming concerned, it was time Darl did likewise. First step would be a call around the planet to the Cobra Training Center in Freyr Complex to see about shaking loose some more numbers. And after that, it would probably be best to have the dining service send up two dinners instead of just one. It looked like this could be a long evening for him, too. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Mike Coopery for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week on the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>